Healing the Wounds, Forgiveness and Reconciliation in the Workplace by Greg Coker, author of Building Cathedrals, The Power of Purpose, and The Soft Skills Field Manual, forward by retired Air Force Brigadier General Dan Cherry. In this audio version of Healing the Wounds, Forgiveness and Reconciliation in the Workplace, Greg Coker offers a refreshing and first-hand perspective on this uncharted organizational dynamic while building a convincing case on why forgiveness and reconciliation are indeed key business issues that today's leaders can no longer afford to ignore. How to get the most out of healing the wounds, forgiveness and reconciliation in the workplace. Think of healing the wounds, forgiveness and reconciliation in the workplace as your personal, private workbook. Taking notes and creating action plans throughout your listening experience and reviewing your plan on a regular basis. Before you get started, create at least one action plan, perhaps as many as three, based on your role within your organization, and develop these plans as you listen to this audio series. You'll be given your own answers to the who, the what, and the when questions in each action plan. Please consider the following three examples of what an individual, what a team, and what an organization action plan might look like. For the individual action plan, the what could be personal stationary. The who, of course, would be you. The when would be when you anticipate accomplishing this task. Perhaps another action plan on your individual action plan could be read one self-development book per month. The who, of course, would be you. The when, again, would be when you would anticipate accomplishing this task. For your team action plan, if you work in teams, the what might be a fun outing with your team. The who, of course, would be you. The when, again, when you anticipate accomplishing this task. Another item for the team action plan could be this book, Forgiveness and Reconciliation in the Workplace, for your team. The who, of course, you. The when is when you anticipate to accomplish this task. Another item under the team action plan could a get together with someone you've had a personal issue with and starting to heal those wounds. If you lead an organization, perhaps you would create an organization action plan. Perhaps an item on that organization action plan could be simply create a culture of forgiveness and reconciliation by self-disclosing your personal story. Of course, the who would be you. Another item could be perhaps set clear expectation for others. Another item, maybe visit with someone to let them know enough is enough and you expect a better working relationship between these two people. Dedication. To my wife, Nikki, for listening to me talk about this audio series for the last several years, for her encouragement and believing that I might be onto something with this book. I sincerely apologize for not always asking about the many great things you're involved with and committed to. Appreciation. Thank you for your time and investment in healing the wounds, forgiveness and reconciliation in the workplace. But most of all, thank you in advance for the forgiveness, reconciliation, and organizational healing you will facilitate, hopefully experience, and the greater levels of success you will reach as a result. Thank you to my clients who allow me to work with your companies, your organizations, your teams, and your individual employees. 
I am grateful every day to partner with so many wonderful people. Most of all, I'd like to thank the original creator of forgiveness and reconciliation, God. Thank you for the inspiration to write this book. You deserve all the credit. Introduction. I was riding high. 20 years with two Fortune 500 companies, a government regulator, great career, and making good money. But if you're ever going to be fired in corporate America, it's usually on a Friday afternoon at 3 p.m. And that was the case when my organizational nemesis entered my office. The envelope I was asked to open contained an offer to leave quietly. Approximately 75% of my annual salary, the promise the company would not fight unemployment insurance, and outplacement services to assist with my transition. I immediately countered with 100% of my salary, and Richard, the aforementioned nemesis, responded, you're not going to win this one. I texted my carpool partner to go ahead and leave without me and said I would find a ride home, an over one-hour commute. But being the class act and close friend he is to this day, he responded, I'm not going to leave you. While I was emotional most of the way home, he encouraged me to write the book I had been talking about and make the most of this. We both knew that I wasn't happy. The good news was I had most of a year's salary, a safety net with unemployment insurance that would pay the mortgage for at least six months, and most importantly, the skills, experience, and family support for a relatively soft landing. Hired by a great leader, fired by a great manager. I was serving a four-year political appointment on our state's public service commission responsible for regulation of over 1,000 utilities. While I had experience in the utility industry, this assignment was a reward for raising a significant amount of money for our governor. Considered to be one of the more attractive gubernatorial appointments, this role afforded me numerous opportunities to attend industry-related conferences, interacting and networking with top executives from utility companies. Bob and I had reconnected in Washington, D.C. at a regulatory conference. I often describe emotional intelligence as what happens to the oxygen when someone walks into a room. And when Bob walked into any room, the oxygen automatically increased and was significantly refreshed. In fact, Bob was probably the most natural leader I have encountered. It was at this conference Bob and his leadership team asked about my plans post-government service. Soon enough, Bob made me a job offer and I accepted. That was the beginning of a great ride that would unfortunately end all too soon. Bob and the company's official employment offer was tendered over his kitchen table while my wife and kids were entertained by his family in the adjoining living room. Prior to the formal part of the evening, Bob had taken my family to a local restaurant, signaling to my kids, order all the appetizers you want. That generosity was a key leadership trait that I witnessed and was a recipient of many times. It was not unusual for Bob to call as he drove through our town, directing me to invite my entire family to meet him in 30 minutes at our favorite restaurant, one that he remembered me mentioning in our many times together. This was just one of the many experiences that led my wife to exclaim years later after Bob's promotion to corporate headquarters, I miss Bob like a death. Key question, how do you show appreciation for your employee's family? 
losing my sponsor. Yes, I was concerned when Bob left. Years earlier, when I'd worked for another company, I asked the president what it took to get ahead. Without hesitation, he replied, you have to be smart and you have to have a sponsor. With Bob leaving, I knew my career trajectory was in jeopardy. I was losing my sponsor. And while I'm sure Bob wanted to believe when he said, Greg, you'll be good for Richard and he'll be good for you, we both knew there would be friction at best and at the end of my career, most likely the outcome. Our division was losing a great leader and getting a great manager. A new sheriff in town. Richard's reputation was established. He was smart, no-nonsense division president. He liked tight controls and preferred his immediate team to be in the office versus out in the field. He had a very specialized engineering degree from an Ivy League school, and in short, high IQ and low EQ, emotional intelligence. Later in Chapter 7, I suggest the best method to build rapport with an opposite social style is for both people to meet in the middle. Expressive should strive to be at the top left of their quadrant, analyticals to the bottom right, versus in the corners, expressives in the bottom right quadrant, analyticals in the top left. I often think of how I contributed to my demise, and even though I teach this stuff, I never applied my own advice. Instead of meeting Richard in the middle, see chapter 7, predicting what he would need, expect, and deserve regarding my role in the company, the data and the analytics, I staked out my territory and went to the corner, the bottom right of the expressive quadrant. I can even remember boasting, he obviously doesn't understand my job. I don't stay in the office. In short, and as my dad was fond of describing a stray dog as he enters another's territory, I peed on the tree. Key point, the number one reason for conflict in teams is the lack of role clarity. When Bob hired me, my role was somewhat unclear. Greg, just get in here. We'll define your role later. Naturally, Richard honed in on this lack of clarity like a laser beam. Management and leadership. In retrospect, I don't blame Richard for my departure as much as I blame senior management for not holding Bob and Richard responsible for both managing the business and leading its people. They settled for one, compromised the other twice. Under Bob's direction, our culture was thriving. Employee engagement was at record highs. Customers were satisfied, and the communities we served loved our company. But profits were down, and we spent money lavishly entertaining both customers and our leadership team. We worked hard and played harder. In fact, it was reported when Bob left town for corporate headquarters, his local country club almost went broke without the numerous company functions he was fond of hosting. Under Richard's direction, profits quickly rebounded. Our rate structure was now better aligned with company goals, and gone was all the frivolous spending. Jokingly, a team member commented that Richard had called off Christmas after he suspended the sending of Christmas cards to customers and key business partners. Not surprisingly, employee morale suffered, and the communities not only lost faith in our company, they started proactively seeking alternative supplies for a traditional 
monopolistic commodity. The cancer metastasizes. Unfortunately, albeit predictably, my dislike for Richard turned into hate and my engagement plummeted. For the last 20 years, the Gallup organization has conducted its annual employee engagement survey with the percentages rarely changing. 26% of employees are fully engaged. 55% of employees are partially engaged. 19% of employees are totally disengaged. Prior to Richard's reign, I was definitely in the 26%. Based on the research, Gallup reports four primary reasons for employees to be fully engaged. Number one, a personal relationship with one's immediate supervisor. Two, the opportunity to get in the ball game and apply one's skills and experience. Number three, to feel appreciated. And number four, friends at work. Richard didn't like or appreciate my style and didn't feel my job was important. Strike one. And my job title, a 15-year background in performing this particular job function, and an intense passion for the work, didn't stop him from removing most of my job responsibilities. Strike two. Not surprisingly, I found it hard to feel appreciated based on reasons one and two. And the tension between us created tension in the workplace that kept everyone from enjoying their jobs, much less enjoying each other. And what level of productivity can be expected in that toxic environment? Strike three. In short, all employees were on edge when Richard was present. Enter the 55%, partially engaged based on the annual Gallup poll. Hoping I would quit driving me into the 55% may have felt like an appropriate strategy for Richard in hoping I would simply go away. In other words, to resign on my own accord. And while I explored leaving the company, an economic downturn limited the opportunities to earn what I was making few and far between. And I stayed. Enter the 19%. Totally disengaged. My expressive personality put on the victim glasses, leading to the most extreme form of toxic management. The following is a recipe for that toxic management. Number one, take a 26% employee that you don't particularly like, don't think their job is necessary, and use a heavy-handed approach. The result? Drive that employee to the 55%. Number two, now they're in the 55%. Push a little harder, use a little heavier-handed approach, and hopefully they'll quit and just go away. If they won't leave, proceed to step three. Step three, now they're in the 19% and they're still around. They're miserable. It shows on their face. We can't have the 19% around here. They must go. Call HR. Step number four, cover your and the company's tail by offering a decent severance package. I mean, you have to sleep, right? In the book, Good to Great, Jim Collins uses a bus metaphor to describe what great companies do. Number one, get the right people on the bus. That's recruitment. Number two, get the right people in the right seats. That's alignment. Number three, get the wrong people off the bus. In fact, Jim Collins suggests the longer we keep the wrong people on our bus, the longer we're stealing from their lives. 
I agree, but there's a right way and a wrong way to get the wrong people off the bus. Unfortunately, most organizations do it the wrong way. If you see someone in public that you and your organization had to get off the bus and you instinctively go the opposite way, you've done it the wrong way. Most leaders have never been taught and or witnessed how to do it any other way. So a key question, does your company have a process for termination that ensures that employees leave with his or her self-esteem intact? Jim Collins misses a key metaphor. Jim Collins is much smarter than I. I love his book and I love his bus metaphor, but he missed a key metaphor because I doubt Jim Collins has ever been fired. What about the driver of the bus? You have the following, the right people on the bus, the right people in the right seats, and you've gotten the wrong people off the bus. But your organization has a toxic manager, the driver of the bus, with wounded riders, the employees, and often fatalities, those who never transitioned after toxic management within your organization. Another reason one's identity should not be tied to the company by which one is employed. So how comfortable would you be with a bumper sticker above your office door that simply says, how's my driving? A better approach. This is Richard speaking. Greg, you're not a bad guy. Your style and my style are totally opposite, but it's not personal. Honestly, I don't see you on my bus long term. When you arrived under Bob's leadership, you had what I understand was a challenging team to say the least. And to your credit, you got them to where they need to be. In fact, you may have worked yourself out of a job. So in the next three to six months, you need to transition off my bus. You can transfer to another division. We had six of them. You can see if Bob has a space for you at corporate. I had already discussed with my wife the likelihood of us moving, and they had agreed to such a move. Or you can leave the company. I will allow you time to interview. This is me speaking. That's fair. While this stings, Richard, you're the division president. At least I can transition on my own terms with my self-esteem and confidence intact. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. In Bob Buford's book, Halftime, Changing the Game Plan from Success to Significance, he uses a metaphor of a football game. He suggests in the first half of our lives, we don't think too much about how we'll spend the rest of our lives. We rush through school, we get married, we start a family, we climb the corporate ladder and buy lots of toys. At some point in our lives, however, we start to wonder if this is as good as it gets. Somehow keeping score does not offer the thrill it once did. During the first half, we take some vicious hits and often suffer personal setbacks such as a job loss. While my first half was about success, the second half had to be about significance. Bottom line, the game is won or lost in the second half, not the first half. Building cathedrals versus laying bricks. While I was standing in the unemployment line, a humbling experience of nothing else, two stories came to mind. One story of President John F. Kennedy at NASA observing two men sweeping the floor. To the first, he asked, what are you doing? That one replies, I'm sweeping the floor. Turning to the second gentleman, 
The president asks the same question and gets this answer. With all due respect, Mr. President, I'm helping you put a man on the moon. The second story is a story of someone observing two people laying bricks. To the first, what are you doing? Laying bricks is the answer. The second bricklayer, after being asked the same question, replies, I'm building a cathedral. For the first time in my life, I felt more like the first two characters in the stories rather than the latter two. The Foundation and the Cathedral After a few interviews, which seemed more like an inquisition rather than an exploration of my education, skills, and experience, it became apparent, at least to me, that I could make as much money on my own opposed to starting all over working for someone else. To me, this was my cathedral. However, to my wife, my getting a traditional job and providing the established foundation was more important. While coaching others, I encountered this entrepreneurial spirit on a regular basis. Inevitably, the significant other is more concerned about the foundation, and rightly so, especially after a job transition and or a major life change. Granted, I'm no marriage counselor, but I suggest each partner be understanding and supportive of both the foundation and the cathedral. They are not mutually exclusive. In fact, the foundation is the mission. The cathedral is the vision. The foundation for me was a much smaller company than I was accustomed and a CEO with whom I had a personal relationship, all which provided that needed stability. And when I was ready to fly on my own, he was open to and supportive of my transition from employee to consultant. I will forever be grateful to my dear friend, Glenn, and for whom I would run through a wall. In fact, the number one reason for employee engagement running through that wall is a personal relationship with one's immediate supervisor. Without a personal relationship, the most you can expect is 55%. Compliance versus commitment, that 26%. Forgiveness and reconciliation, well, sort of. My personal healing started when I ran into Richard at a basketball game. He greeted my wife and me with a pleasant, Hey, Greg and Nikki. Surprisingly, he didn't seem like the monster I had been making him out to be over the last six months. I remember thinking that perhaps the healing had indeed started, even as my wife whispered a not-so-pleasant thought about Richard in my ear as we moved down to our seats. In Chapter 7, we discuss social styles. My style, expressive driver, is more likely to forgive and reconcile rather quickly. My wife, the amiable, may eventually forgive, but never forgets. For the amiable, it's more personal. For me, the expressive driver, Richard firing me was business. He may have gone about the wrong way, but I still believe it was business for him. Management, not leadership. IQ, not EQ. Key point. In your quest for forgiveness and reconciliation, you are likely to have others discouraging you from this decision to let bitterness and hard feelings go. Forgiveness and eventual reconciliation. Cancer-free, or at least a remission. I had numerous encounters with Richard over the next several years with each one more welcomed, comfortable, and pleasurable than the previous. In fact, when my father passed away, under Richard's direction, 
Four sets of flowers were sent to the funeral home. Forgiveness and reconciliation can indeed incur in some of the most unexpected and unusual places and times. And upon hearing of his promotion to corporate, I sent an email with the following message. Richard, congratulations on your new position in Seattle. My thoughts and prayers are with you and your family during this transition. My best, Greg Coker. Now, when I worked for Richard, he never responded to a text message or an email. Sort of his way of controlling. But within seconds from receiving my email, I received the following reply. Greg, thank you for your nice note. My best for you and your family. Sincerely, Richard. I was in my driveway, and upon receiving the email from Richard, I wept. I thank God for both forgiveness and reconciliation. I was indeed cancer-free. But little did we both realize, closure and healing had been stolen from each of us for many years. Considered an expert in human behavior and organizational dynamics, Greg Coker is the author of Building Cathedrals, The Power of Purpose, and The Soft Skills Field Manual, The Unwritten Rules for Succeeding in the Workplace. Greg's website is gregcokerdevelopment.com. He can be reached at 270-223-8343.